As we uh, prepare to uh, look at the uh, catechism in a little bit, uh, there are three passages of Scripture that I want to read first. Uh, One from the Old Testament, page 81, Exodus 18. Exodus 18, verses 13 through 27. Exodus 18, verse 13. And so it was on the next day that Moses set to judge the people. And the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So when Moses' father-in-law saw that he, all that he did for the people, he said, What is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me, and I judge between one and another, and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing you do is not good. Both you and these people are, who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. For this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel, and God will be with you. Stand before God, stand before God for the people, so that you may bring the difficulties to God, and you shall teach them the statutes and the laws, and show them the way in which they must walk, and the work they must do. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifty, and rulers of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifty, rulers of tens. So they judged the people at all times, the hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way to his own land. And then reading from the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 16, page 1,121, page 1,121, Matthew 16, beginning at verse 13, and uh, reading through verse 20, Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven." 
Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. And then just one verse from Hebrews 13, page 1385, Hebrews 13, 17. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. And then reading from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 31 on page 886, the very bottom of the second column on page 886 and continuing on the next page. Question and answer 83. What are the keys of the kingdom? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline toward repentance. Both of them open the kingdom of heaven to believers and close it to unbelievers. How does preaching the Holy Gospel open and close the kingdom of heaven? According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened by proclaiming and publicly declaring to all believers, each and every one, that as often as they accept the gospel promise in true faith, God, because of Christ's merit, truly forgives all their sins. The kingdom of heaven is closed, however, by proclaiming and publicly declaring to unbelievers and hypocrites that as long as they do not repent, the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them. God's judgment both in this life and the life to come is based on this gospel testimony. How is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened by Christian discipline? According to the command of Christ, those who, though called Christians, profess unchristian teaching or live unchristian lives, and who after repeated personal and loving admonitions refuse to abandon their errors and evil ways, and who, after being reported to the church, that is, to those ordained by the church for that purpose, fail to respond also to the church's admonitions, such persons the church excludes from Christian community by withholding the sacraments from them, and God also excludes them from the kingdom of Christ. Such persons, when promising and demonstrating genuine reform, are received again as members of Christ and of his church. Beloved of the Lord, when Peter made the good confession that uh, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus responded that on this rock I will build my church. And he wasn't referring about Peter, but Peter's confession. The church is made up of those who confess faith in Jesus Christ together with their children. Those children who One day, we pray, will confess with their lips and believe in their hearts what is signified and sealed unto them in their baptism. When those children come forward and make a public profession of faith, they confess their love for Christ, they confess their sin and uh, their grief concerning their sin and their belief that Jesus Christ has died for their sins, and they make a promise They promise to submit to the government of the church. Now, you might say in a confession of faith, we, uh, it's understandable that they confess their sin, that they're sinners, 
that they confess their love for Jesus and uh, confess their desire to live for him. But why do they have to promise to submit to the government of the church? Well, they do that because as soon as Jesus said, on this rock, I build my church, he immediately went on to say, and to you, I give the keys of the kingdom so that whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He gave them keys of the kingdom in conjunction with the profession of faith in which the church is centered. Uh, Membership in the church is focused on that good confession of faith. These things are brought together by Jesus. Now, to understand what that's all about, we need to ask, what are keys of the kingdom? What are keys all about? Well, keys are a metaphor or a symbol of authority. Let me give you some background from the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 22, verses 21 and 22, God is speaking to a man named uh, Shebna, uh, speaking to him through Isaiah. Shebna is a servant in the house of David. That is not uh, David himself, but uh, the house of David. A a Davidic king uh, is now on the throne in Jerusalem. And Shebna is the steward of the house of David. It's kind of like the president's chief of staff. uh, The chief official who guards control and access to the president. The chief of staff is the one who says... uh, Uh, You want to see the president? You come through me. Uh, I clear all requests and I can deny requests uh, to see the president. Well, Shibno had that kind of authority with respect to the king of Israel. He was the steward of the house. He he, uh, controlled who would do that. Well, this Shibna got uh, a big head, uh, we would say. He got a little bit too proud of his authority. And uh, he showed that by building a tomb for himself among the tombs of the kings. He thought he deserved royal honor in his death. That's how he wanted to be remembered, as, uh, as if he were one of the kings. And so God comes to him while he's still living and says, I'm going to take your job and give it to somebody else. And uh, this is what it says in uh, Isaiah 22. I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. Now notice it says, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David, and He will control who gets in to see the king uh, who reigns on David's throne and who is excluded from seeing the king. There's a key, and that key is put on his shoulder. You know, uh, uh, officers in the military wear their rank on their shoulders. I'm not sure if that's still the case. I know that uh, uh, uniform codes have changed recently, and uh, rank insignia is less visible because enemies uh, like to take out the highest uh, ranking officer if they have a choice of shooting one or the other. Uh, but uh, at least when I was in the military uh, or training for the military, uh, 
uh, lieutenants and generals, they uh, all wore their stars or bars on, on their shoulders. Uh, it was a sign of their, their rank and uh, their authority, and the different symbols uh, indicated different uh, degrees of authority. And so uh, uh, it, is, uh, it was that's not anything new, nothing new under the sun. Uh, the steward of the house of David wore a key on his shoulder as a sign of his authority. And God is saying to this unfaithful steward, I'm going to take the key off of your shoulder and I'm going to put it on this other guy's shoulder because you've gotten too big for your britches. And uh, so that's uh, uh, sort of the origin, uh, the biblical origin of the idea of keys of the kingdom being used to admit people to the king or deny him access to the king. Now, Jesus picks up on that uh, same uh, terminology, uh, keys of the kingdom, and says to his disciples, and to you, I give the keys of the kingdom. Uh, he's saying, I give you authority. Authority with regard to entrance into the kingdom, access to God, or keeping people out of the kingdom, deny access to God. That, that authority I give to you. Jesus had come proclaiming the kingdom of God. And uh, he talked about people coming into the kingdom. Uh, Paul in Colossians 1.12 says, uh, and Paul gives thanks to the Father who has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. You know, we used to be in Satan's realm, but by God's grace, he has taken us out of Satan's realm and transferred us into the kingdom of his son. But Jesus warned that even people who are in the kingdom can be uh, kicked out. In Matthew 8, 11 and 12, Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is, a ta- uh, Of course, Jesus is referring to the fact that uh, uh, the Gentiles are going to come rushing into the kingdom and the hard-hearted Israelites who refuse to believe in Jesus, who refuse to receive him and believe in him, uh, though they are heirs of the kingdom, they will be cast out into the outer darkness. So entrance into the kingdom is a serious and crucial matter, a matter of eternal happiness or eternal damnation. Now, one of the questions I had when I first learned about keys of the kingdom was, well, is this something that only belongs to the twelve disciples? Is this something that only belongs to apostles? Or is the kingdom authority that Jesus speaks of here of uh, binding and loosing and it being recognized in heaven and so forth. Is that something that pertains to all church leaders, all uh, ministers and elders and deacons and so forth? Well, uh, I, uh, I began a study and one of the things I studied was uh, Timothy first uh, Timothy three. Uh, uh, this is a trustworthy saying. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, we would call that the office of elder uh, or uh, presbyter. Uh, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Well, what that's telling us is that the office bearers of the church 
have to have managerial talent. They have to have managerial talent because they are called to exercise managerial authority in the church. Again, uh, 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Uh, Now, that says something about women, but it also implies something about men. And what is implicit about men is I do let men exercise authority in the church. Uh, This is, again, just before he gives the qualifications for office bearers. He introduces this idea of men having authority. And uh, it's it's obvious that men have to have managerial skill and they have to exercise authority. Again, uh, 1 Timothy 5, verse 17 let the elders who rule, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Uh, all labor, all elders rule, and uh, including those who preach and teach. So uh, here he's saying managerial skill, exercise authority. They also rule. Uh, Paul wrote to Titus, Titus who was not an apostle. He said, declare these things, declare the gospel, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So here a minister is told to exhort with authority. So they they manage, they exercise authority, they rule, they teach with authority. And then Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. Obey your leaders and uh, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. So not only does do they have to have managerial skills, not only do they have to rule and rule with authority, but the rest of the congregation is commanded to submit to them. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12, it says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So again, he says, there are these men who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. In uh, Revelation chapter 2, Jesus uh, uh speaks first to the church at Ephesus, and he he congratulates them, he commends them. He commends them for conducting heresy trials and getting rid of false teachers. Uh, These people claimed to be apostles, but were not, and they put them on trial, found them guilty, and and got rid of them. And Jesus said, you did the right thing by uh, exercising that authority, that managerial, that ruling function in the church of of dealing with these false uh, teachers in the church. Uh, the uh, church at uh, Pergamon and the church at uh, Thyatira are scolded for tolerating false teaching, meaning they shouldn't tolerate false teaching. They should be like the church at Ephesus and get rid of these false teachers. So again, uh, the keys of the kingdom uh, are something that were exercised uh, by not just the apostles, but by all those 
who uh, were called to positions of authority in the church. And, and that shouldn't surprise us. This has been true since the beginning of the church uh, in the time of, of Moses. We read that passage from Exodus where uh, uh, Moses' father-in-law said, Look for able men from all the people, men who fear God and who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people. Let them judge the people at all times. Place them over the people. Let them judge the people at all times. And that includes uh, meeting out punishments uh, when it was necessary. So this has always been the case among God's people that there are human authorities in among God's people that God puts there to lead, to rule, to govern, to manage, to exercise authority, to exercise the keys of the kingdom. Shibna was not an apostle, but he had kingdom authority to exercise authority in the house of uh, the king of uh, David's line. Uh, Eliakim, the man who took his place, was given uh, the keys of the kingdom. These guys weren't uh, anything special in terms of apostleships or anything like that. They were ordinary men whom God elevated to positions where they were to exercise keys. Now, the application of this is uh, uh, very clear. Christ is, is building a church, and that church is an, an earthly a human institution with human leaders, human leaders who exercise Christ's kingdom authority. If you want Christ, you will find him in the church that he's building. If you don't want the church, if you don't want to be under the authority of its leaders, then you're rejecting what Christ has set up. And if you're rejecting what Christ has set up, then you're rejecting Christ. Uh, If you want Christ, you find him in the church. Uh, If you say, well, I'm a member of the invisible church or I'm a member of the universal church, Well, there are aspects of Christ's church that we cannot see, but Christ's church is never uh, entirely invisible. Christ's church has ministers and elders and deacons to whom members are called to submit. Christ's church gathers together with uh, all the members being connected as members of a body are connected. Each body part can only function properly when connected to the other body parts. Christ's church gathers weekly for worship, it has preaching, it has sacraments, and it has discipline, and uh, disciplines its members. There's no such thing as membership in the universal church without membership in the local congregation. Yes, we are members of a universal church that extends from the beginning of time and the end of time, but the way that we are assured that we are part of that is because we submit to the yoke of Christ. We submit to the rules of Christ. We submit to what Christ is doing. And what Christ is doing is building a church that has ministers, elders, and deacons, that has preaching, that has sacraments, that has discipline, which means it has membership, That's what Christ is doing. That's where Christ is working. And as we submit to that, we gain assurance that we are uh, part of that uh, universal church. There's a a passage in in the Belgic uh, Confession that I'd 
I'd like to uh, point out to you, if I can find it, page 865, page 865 in the back of the uh, Trinity Psalter hymnal on the bottom of uh, page 865, right at the bottom of the second column, article 28. It says uh, concerning the, uh, the church, it says, we believe that this holy assembly and congregation is the gathering of those who are saved. And there is no salvation apart from it. No one ought to withdraw from it, content to be by himself, regardless of his status or condition. Now it says there that this church is a congregation, a gathering, and that there is no salvation apart from that congregation, from that gathering, and no one may separate themselves from that congregation, from that gathering. That, when I first read that, I thought, that sounds awfully Catholic, you know, a Roman Catholic, that uh, uh, you, you have to be part of the Roman Catholic Church or you're, you're lost, you know, because only the, the Roman Catholic priest can give you the body and blood of Christ, and that's where you get salvation, and so you have to be part of that to be part of the church. Uh, here it's saying... Almost something that sounds similar, that you have to be a member of a local congregation in order to be saved. Well, what's he talking about there? Well, he's saying that Christ is building his church through these local congregations. And it's one thing to be prevented by God's providence from being part of the congregation. You know, uh, when they built the second Christian Reformed Church in Iron City, in the 1920s, to be the English-speaking congregation, they, they built it up high. There were about, I don't know, 15, 20 steps, the concrete steps outside the building that you had to climb in order to get into the, uh, the worship place. And, uh, you know, you were thinking, we, we think today, you know, because of Disability Act and so forth, uh, what were they thinking? You know, they're basically saying to everybody uh, in the congregation with any kind of physical disability, all the old people who can't climb steps anymore, you're not welcome in church anymore. Well, uh, we, know, we, know, we now know not to put uh, big uh, steps like that uh, in churches, or if we do have steps, we put elevators in and so forth. But still, there are providential circumstances that prevent people from coming including old age, uh, prevent people from coming. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about people who withdraw because they reject it. They don't want it. You know, I visited with someone recently who hasn't been in, in church uh, for uh, many months, and they, say, uh, they said, I, I long to be back there. Uh, that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about people who don't want to be there, who are turning their back on the local congregation. And, and we confess in the Belgian Confession that people who do that can have no assurance that they are, have anything to do with Christ because they're rejecting, by, if by rejecting what Christ is doing, they're rejecting Christ. Now, what are the keys of the kingdom? The Catechism identifies two keys for us, preaching and discipline. And I don't know that this takes a lot of explanation. Uh, the Catechism is pretty clear that in preaching, the preacher... Uh, holds up Jesus Christ, tells you who he is, and tells you what he has done. He is the Son of God. He is uh, 
second person of the Trinity made man, who came and dwelt among us, who humbled himself, who took the form of a servant, who he proclaimed the good news of his death and the good news of his resurrection and the good news of his ascension and the good news of his return. Those are all uh, historical realities or uh, future prophecies that will become historical realities. We proclaim that. And uh, then we call people to believe in him and to trust in him and assure people that when you do that, you are transferred from one kingdom to another kingdom and you become citizens of God's kingdom as you uh, submit uh, to Christ through faith in him and strive now to uh, obey him in gratitude for all that he has done for you and in keeping with what he is doing uh, in you, that good work that he has begun in you. Uh, That opens the kingdom by preaching the gospel. But at the same time, we say, as I've just said here, uh, if you reject uh, Christ by rejecting his church or rejecting the gospel, whatever, uh, then the, the kingdom is closed to you by that announcement, that authoritative announcement. Uh, people who are ordained to teach are uh, in, uh, given authority to speak uh, for Christ Uh, not to make up their own message, to be sure, to speak only what Christ has already said in his word, but as it is proclaimed, it's proclaimed with his authority. And uh, you will be judged in the life to come by whether you have obeyed the gospel or not. Uh, And so the the, uh, preaching is a, a key that opens and closes. In 2 Thessalonians it says, that when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord because they didn't obey the gospel. The gospel that you hear, that you hear proclaimed, is something that you're going to be judged on whether you have believed it or not because it is a key of the kingdom that opens to those who believe and shuts the kingdom to those who reject it. But in addition to uh, uh, preaching, we have the key of discipline. Uh, discipline is something that we find on the pages of the Bible, 1 Corinthians 5, verses 4 and 5. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and my spirit is present with you, With the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. There's a man who's living in open uh, sin and rebellion against uh, uh, the standards of righteousness, and Paul's uh, saying, uh, uh, purge this evil person from among you. 1 Corinthians 5.13 Purge this evil person from among you. That's uh, excommunication, excluding people from the church because of uh, unchristian doctrine or unchristian lifestyle of which they refuse to repent. But uh, in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, uh, supposedly writing about the same person, he says, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn and forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. It appears that this, the, uh, the discipline had a good effect on the man and he humbled himself and uh, repented of his sin. And uh, so we, uh, we see such discipline in the church. Uh, in Acts 20, verse 30, uh, Paul says in his farewell to the Ephesian elders, he says, guard the flock from wolves in sheep's clothing. 
who will arise from your own number. That was the warning he gave to the Ephesian elders, that from their own number would arise wolves in sheep clothing. That's the church at Ephesus, the same church that is addressed in Revelation 2. Uh, I commend you that you tested these false apostles who claimed to be, but, but were not. Uh, Paul writes to Titus and says, as, a first, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once or twice, have nothing more to do with him. And uh, John writes in his second epistle, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him. Uh, he says, do not receive him into your house. Although uh, at that time they were all uh, had house churches so that we should understand receive him into your house means receive him into your church. That uh, they don't bring this teaching. So again, the, the church is to uh, examine people with regard to their theology and uh, their doctrine and their beliefs and their lifestyle. And if it uh, departs from godly standards and they don't respond to admonitions, um, then we uh, need to exercise discipline. Uh, the Bible says uh, that uh, when they uh, they do that, we are to. Uh, he says. Uh, we're to uh, not have uh, fellowship uh, with them. And uh, that has caused some people some uh, consternation. They say, uh, just how do we handle that? Uh, especially if it's, uh, if it's uh, a son or a grandson who's been excommunicated. Does that mean I can never have any fellowship with that child again? But I think there's some wisdom in 1 Corinthians 7 in what Paul says to uh, husbands and wives who may be married to an unbeliever. Uh, the primary situation was such that uh, uh, an unbelieving couple would hear the gospel and one of them, the husband or the wife, would become a believer and the other one wouldn't. And, and they wanted to know what should we do in such a situation. Uh, and uh, the uh, command of Paul was that the, un- the believing partner must stay with the unbelieving partner unless the unbeliever partner uh, wants out. If the unbelieving partner deserts, uh, let him go, he says. Uh, but uh, otherwise, uh, the believer should stay with that, that unbeliever. I uh, became acquainted not too long ago with a couple that I think has been married over 50 years. Uh, they were married in a Reformed church where they were both uh, professing members. And uh, a few uh, months after uh, the wedding, uh, the husband said to his wife, you know, I've never really... Uh, believed any of this uh, Christian stuff. I, I, yeah, I made profession of faith because it was expected of me, but I'm tired of going to church. I'm not going to go anymore. And uh, he was excommunicated. Uh, and so you had a woman, a Christian woman, living with an unbeliever. Uh, what should she do? Well, he's been excommunicated. Does that mean that he has to... Uh, uh, eat his meals uh, in the living room and she gets to eat in the dining room or the kitchen or something and they uh, can't talk to each other. And uh, No, uh, she's uh, still his wife. He's still the husband. Uh, it appeared to me that uh, he still loved her very much after they had been married all this time, but uh, he was adamant that he didn't want anything to do with uh, the church. Well, he's still family and so you still have to live with family. Uh, there was a, a grandmother in Orange City who was uh, very upset that her grandson was excommunicated. And uh, she said, does this mean I can never invite him into my house anymore? And I said, uh, as long as you remember and uh, he understands that your relationship with him is that of a grandmother and grandson and not as uh, fellow believers in Christ, as long as you don't treat him as a, as a Christian, 
but continue to evangelize him, then you can, yeah, he's still family. Uh, that, that tie isn't uh, broken. And uh, long after the grandmother died, uh, the, uh, the grandson, he recently died, but he died in the faith. And so the, the excommunication had a good effect on him and her prayers were, uh, for him were answered after her death. Uh, and so we, we rejoice in those kinds of, of things that are happening. But, uh, you know, a church without discipline ceases to be a church. Uh, if you uh, no longer uh, exercise control over the lives of the members, then uh, the minister soon finds out that there are certain sins that he better not preach against, because if he preaches against them, uh, those sins, the the elders won't back him up. The elders will just turn a blind eye to that sin, even though uh, the minister's preaching against it. And uh, it uh, becomes kind of an intolerable situation. The minister has uh, less and less that he can uh, preach about or uh, sins that he can condemn. And uh, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper becomes corrupted because there's people who don't belong there, who are, who are uh, coming regularly now because the church isn't uh, exercising discipline. A church without discipline becomes a, a social club. It's it's not a church anymore. Uh, those who want a church that leaves them alone and lets them do as they please don't want Christ's church. But uh, neither way we uh, uh, make up our own rules. The elders have to be very careful that the rules that they enforce are the rules that Christ has taught and uh, not their own. Don't resent having to live under authority. We're not designed to go it alone. Even Adam and Eve uh, had to uh, to live under authority. And uh, Adam was called to exercise uh, headship even in the garden. That's why he named the animals and he named his wife. That was an exercise of authority over her and so forth. And even within the Trinity, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each fully God, equal with respect to their being. Yet, uh, the Father sends the Son, the Son obeys the Father, and the Father and Son together send the Spirit. The Spirit bears witness not to Himself, but He bears witness uh, to uh, the Son. And so there is equality with respect to their being and subordination with respect to the work that they do. And we too are subordinate to those whom God places over us. We're created in God's image, and therefore we shouldn't be surprised that that's what's good for us, is to be under authority. And so we say to our young people when they make profession of faith, do you promise to submit to the government of the church, the government that Christ has established through the keys of the kingdom? Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for his church. We thank you that he is building his church and that he has given the keys of the kingdom to the church, kingdom authority to be exercised by men on the church uh, for Jesus Christ. We pray that you would be with those who hold the keys, that they may be careful to exercise them in a way that honors God and enforces only his rules. And uh, we pray that we would not resent being under authority and submitting to those whom you have placed over us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.